You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to the 602 Club, Track FM's local watering hole. I am just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me, as she is every single week, the pink-slimed Christy Morris. Hey, I'm here, and I'm full of positive energy, and I just want to tell you, I love you, man. Thanks. I love you, too, man. That's that's so nice. It just oh, it makes me feel so good, you know? I just feel so good, you know? More people should get pink-slimed. Yeah. Spread the love. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, that's so funny. To, well, so we were planning on talking about this movie that we're going to be talking about because there was going to be a sequel to it this summer. And with everything that we're going through, that movie has gotten postponed till next year. Uh, so we decided we would go ahead and talk about this movie because, well, you know, they're taking all the movies off the schedule right now. Uh, and so we figured we would still talk about Ghostbusters 2 since we already talked about Ghostbusters and we were getting ready for Afterlife. But um, that'll have to wait till next year. But we're still going to dive into part two uh, and uh, a nice river of pink slime. But before we do that, yeah, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on uh, Twitter at TrekFM. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We've also got our listeners only discussion group there on Facebook called the Babel Conference that you can join and talk to listeners from all over the world talking about the different shows here on the network. Uh, hit us up with a star rating review over on Apple Podcasts uh, to let people know what you're thinking of the show. Um, those reviews really help other people find the show. Uh, and then you can get us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed wherever that is so you get the show as soon as it drops. Uh, you can also go over to trek.fm, which is our website. Uh, go to the contact section. You can send Christy and I an email. And last but not least, we do want to say a huge thank you. we got some associate producers here through Patreon. Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millett, and Daniel Noah. We really appreciate these gentlemen uh, supporting not only the 602 Club, but the entire network and all of the shows that are coming to you. Uh, you know, just like everybody, uh, this is a difficult time for us, too, and it costs a lot of money to put this together. Uh, not only this show, but every single show that we do here in the network. And so uh, if you can help out, if you would love to make sure that all of these shows keep coming to you, go over to patreon.com slash trackfm. Become part of our team. We've got some great contribution levels too, but honestly, every little bit helps. And again, that is patreon.com slash trackfm. So Christy, I wanted to ask you this. I didn't even put this on the uh, outline, but had you seen this movie before? Like, is this a movie that you also watched in conjunction with Ghostbusters where you'd have like, you know, a movie marathon? That's what I was waiting to talk to you about specifically now because this was the first time I've ever seen this one. Okay. Okay. Me too. Me too. So, uh, yeah, I'd seen the original 
And mm-hmm. I've just never gotten around to seeing Ghostbusters 2. And, I mean, there could be a reason for that. And maybe it's just because a lot of people didn't necessarily talk about Ghostbusters 2. And maybe we'll get into some of those reasons as we move forward with the podcast. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it was just, I was never one that I got a chance to check out. And so it was very interesting uh, sitting down this weekend with my wife and, you know, we both watched Ghostbusters together when we did that show, um, and we're watching that one over again, and we really enjoyed it more than we thought we would. So coming into this one, I was like, oh, maybe this will be good. Same cast, you know, you're thinking it's not set long after the first one, it, really hoping for the best. So it's interesting to see how that evolves. Um, and it's funny because I was in a, a similar situation, but my husband loves this movie, has seen it many times. Um, so it was weird being the first person, the, the first of the two of us um, that had never seen it. Yeah. Well, it's so something you, you mentioned, uh, you know, the before this isn't too long after the original. But so the first film comes out in 1984. Um, and the second mm-hmm. movie doesn't come out till 89. And so there's a long development, what in, in Hollywood is affectionately known as development hell that this movie goes through. And I thought that this was fascinating because as I was looking through the information about the making of this movie, the production hell really comes from the fact that the studio wants a quick sequel because the, the first one made a good amount of money. It was very popular, obviously, uh, and really set all of these careers, especially Bill Murray's, on fire. But this, this, the actors don't really want... They, the cast really doesn't feel like doing a sequel. And I thought this was so fascinating that one of the biggest reasons that this kind of languishes for, for six years is that the cast really isn't all that interested in coming back to do a sequel to this movie. And, you know, the weird thing, too, is the number one person was Bill Murray, who really felt like he had peaked with Ghostbusters 1 and actually took a break for four years before he ended up doing um, this and Scrooged because he felt like he just needed to go off and try something else um, and and wasn't sure where he was going to go from there, which I kind of understand. But I, I don't know. I just... I feel too like you should have more faith in yourself. <laughs> Don't be like, well, this is the best it's going to get. I quit. Yeah. Well, and it, it's fascinating too, because the, the, the cast, you know, and especially the main cast of the guys is not really all that interested in coming back because they're not interested in doing a sequel in the first place. They just, they, they feel like sequels are really just things that studios use to make money and they're not usually as good. And so mm-hmm. they, they kind of have a principled, outlook on this idea of why they don't want to do a sequel which i thought was also really fascinating because you know you don't get many stars in hollywood it seemed like turning down basically quote-unquote easy money mm-hmm. you know um and these guys don't want to take the easy money really they they actually want to do something else and so i mean i i applaud them for holding out for as long as they do not wanting to just kind of create a cash cow and not doing something that they feel that has artistic value. Right. Like you, you kind of have to respect them for standing up to the studio and saying, we feel like you're just doing this for the cash grab. And it may not necessarily be 
the hope, you know, the result you're hoping to get. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they had the guts to take that kind of stand as long as they did. Yeah. Like you said, but, um, I do think too, it was nice that they, they ended up coming around just to see them work together again as, as the four of them. Well, and, and I was, I was reading that there seemed to have been some tensions behind the scenes with the four main actors so that as they come back, the cast actually kind of has to work out some personal issues with each other so that Mm -hmm. they can come back together in the first place and they can make this movie work. And so, you know, to me, that's really interesting and it kind of makes sense. I mean, you know, you have four different actors here and, you know, Bill Murray's career had done really well. And then, you know, uh, his big, big project after this does not do great. So, you know, that's like you said, Christy, he kind of retires from acting for about four years. Um, The other guys kind of are spinning their wheels. They're not really getting traction and so you know to come back together it sounds like they needed a little bit of a group therapy session uh before they could actually you know just come back and work well together and i will say too i should have added first i'm definitely the number one person to say in general i usually don't like sequels i felt like for example to most disney movies there did not need to be a sequel to lion king or whatever you know um because it does feel like it's just for business it's not about having good storytelling at that point um and that it just dilutes the original but um i think that sometimes it can work obviously you and i love star wars that worked right (laughs) um and so i you know i'm i'm kind of glad they were able to come back and do something but um yeah it definitely required some talking back and forth for quite a while Mm -hmm. and then dealing with the business component as well of the studio and it it was nice to read though that it ended up uh after the four of them went to a dinner party basically they were back pretty much on the same page and ready to try it yeah and and i think you know one of the things that I found most interesting about all of this, um, you know, in, in this this struggle to make this movie is that, you know, like you said, you know, Star Wars obviously has good sequel. Uh, you know, Terminator 2 is great sequel. Uh, you have Star mm-hmm. Trek 2, which is fantastic sequel. You know, so there is a history in in the 80s of being able to, to make successful sequels to movies. And so I think that's one of the things that, you know, kept studios on this train of like, oh, we can make a sequel to this. And, but at the same time, you know, there are also films to which, like you said, you know, I don't, most movies sequels don't necessarily, don't tend to be very good. And part of that is, you know, you're trying to recapture the magic and, you know, you're trying to just do bigger and better. And, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of times they just feel like you're redoing, you know, what you've already done before. And so, you know, there's so many things that go into doing a successful sequel, and I think the ones that are most successful are the ones where they have a great story idea, and usually it's also one where either the director and or the cast is is really sold on it, you know, and they really mm-hmm. truly believe in it. And um, I think, you know, with what we see kind of here, even just the beginning of these production issues and in this kind of production hell that this movie kind of languishes in you you can kind of tell that for the most part and I I don't even know 
about you, but I felt like watching the movie, I could kind of tell that the guys weren't necessarily as into this. Like, they're just not into it as much as they mm-hmm. were the first movie. Like, he's just not that into you. He's just not that into you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. I can definitely see for sure it, the tension between Murray and Ramus, even as their characters, felt palpable on screen. Did you ever feel that? Yeah, actually, I, I was <laughs> I was thinking that one of the reasons that, uh, and, and this was something in the movie that Murray was kind of worried about, and they actually changed some of the movie so that he spent a little less time with Weaver um, because he felt like there was too much about them and their characters and not enough about the four of them. But I wondered if, do they just have him spending so much time with her because they're not necessarily getting along. I mean, I don't know if that's the case because I'm I'm not an expert on Ghostbusters, but I just mm-hmm. wondered because Bill Murray specifically just did not seem to be himself in this film. And I felt mm-hmm. like, I hate to say this, but I really think he felt, he phoned in most of this performance. Um, and I think that really just comes from what we we're talking about, this production hell, but also there's a ton of production woes that this movie goes through. I mean... Once they finally get into production, it's not smooth sailing. In fact, the production no. is completely rushed. But in, instead of the original film had like a thirteen month cycle, you know this is shot super fast. Um, and then once they're done, I mean they have to go back and reshoot the entire ending. They have to add extra scenes, and it's kind of easy to tell that this movie is just a bit of a mess in the cutting room. And I hate to say it, too, because I love Dan Aykroyd. But if you look at the descriptions of where Aykroyd was thinking of going with the story after the first one, and then what they were going to tell with the second movie, I think that's part of what causes these issues with once they get into filming of having to do reshoots, because Mm -hmm. he's thinking, oh, we'll take it now international and have it be more like a fantasy where it deals with fairies. And we want to have this whole thing with um, morale and we want to have it be underground. I don't know why he went that direction. You don't need the underground part for the other things to work, but um, ultimately they decided to scrap those parts of it and stick with the, the morale and the underground pieces but yeah, you can see that the story itself is just very disconnected. And I think mm-hmm. that leads to these other than production issues yeah. with filming. Yeah, because I mean, the production was too of having to, you know, they felt like they needed, uh, they, they redid the entire ending. Um, they mm-hmm. had to add additional scenes to kind of ramp up tension and just help with the plot itself. So you kind of were understanding more clearly what's going on. But I think, you know, um, all of those things you can just feel as you're watching the movie. And, you know, you kind of combining, I think, the idea of where they kind of originally thought the script would go and everything. And then what we get once we finally are producing the movie, which is we just set it back in New York. I think that's one of the things that that makes the movie. uh, It does the thing that a sequel should never do, which is just have you always comparing it to the original because it's so similar to the original. It's Mm -hmm. just not as, I mean, I guess we'll spoil it. It's just not as good. 
because it could never find its own feet. And so if you had gone to Scotland and done that whole idea, I think it maybe would have worked way better because it's something new and different. You know, you're putting these characters on different footing that's not a place they're comfortable with in in the sense of like, you know, it's not New York City. It's not something they know. Um, And uh, you give them the opportunity to to grow and explore new and new things and and all of that. And here it just feels like their lives are kind of like blah (laughs) after the Mm -hmm. first movie coming in. And nothing ever really feels like all that different. I mean, in in many ways, just where they are in general is kind of in the same place they were at the beginning of the first movie, which is people that nobody believe in anymore and Mm -hmm. having to prove themselves again. It's like, but we already did that in the first movie, so why aren't we trying something different? So it makes so much sense why they're trying to, you know, ramp up the the tension in the movie and make the ending different and bigger. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I will say, though, I still really enjoy a lot of things about the movie. I I think that the humor element is still there throughout. I think that the cast is still great, and that's something that could continue from the first one that we all love and could get on board with just even for that. Um, I think that I, I wish I could have jumped in, although I was too young, unfortunately, to help with the writing, because I think that the beginning sequences about how their lives are now five years later in the story, I think it went on too long. I think that they should have had that be a short, um, you know, like maybe 20 minutes of the movie in the beginning to say, here's where they are at this point. They've fallen out of favor with the city or whatever, but then gotten into the main plot that they wanted to move on to of where we're going so that you have time to develop where we're going to go, what Vigo's role is in all of this and how to resolve the problem. Because I think that is what part of what makes this movie seem more drab and dull and like more of the same is that they go on with it for way too long of, yeah, their lives suck now. You know, they're um, not allowed to investigate the paranormal anymore. Um, Venkman is on this psychic TV show. Ray has a a cult bookstore and also performs at kids' birthday parties. It's like, okay, we get it. Their lives suck now. Yeah, I think I think you're right on there. The plot of this movie and having them look, I get coming into the movie and kind of wanting to try and shake things up and and do something unconventional, which is they're not the heroes anymore, mm-hmm. and it, that people have lost faith in them. But I think what that immediately does is it kind of puts them on that same level they were at the beginning of the first movie. And instead of like really challenging them with something new by again going international, getting them out of their comfort zone, um, all that, I mean, it, I think it would have been much more interesting to have them be the sensation that's called to another place around the world and then doing the fish out of water stuff of, of them being in a new place with, with new, uh, you know, paranormal activity um, would make for all the things where you're you don't know where it's going whereas you know this movie you know it it feels like kind of cookie cutter yeah they're they're not 
popular anymore, but you know they're going to become popular again because we kind of need them to to be able to fight the paranormal or or what the heck are we doing here with this movie? Mm-hmm. Um, and I I don't feel like I, you mentioned like the whole thing with Vigo, and then there's the whole thing with Dana Barrett and her baby Oscar, who you know from a failed marriage, you know she's divorced now. Uh, and all of this stuff just doesn't necessarily feel like it all connects very well together, yes. whereas the first movie is so cohesive. And uh, that's something that I turned to my wife and said, I was like, this just doesn't have the cohesion of the original movie where everything, the script is really tight and everything fits together really well. Um, and all these things are happening for a specific reason, and they're trying to come up with a specific reason for this stuff to be happening, but it doesn't, it just never feels as cohesive as the original. And part of that is that, that so much of it is just kind of a copy, but a, it, it's a pale imitation of what we got in the original film, really. And it feels like it's four different people all having ideas of where they want the story to go and couldn't agree. And then they just end up keeping all of it <laughs> because, yeah. it, you know, all, as much as I love Ramus and, you know, of blessed memory, I, um, I'm kind of disappointed about the way that the child storyline ended up. And he was the one driving that because he had worked on another film that was a horror movie about possession of a child. Mm-hmm. And, and then trying to fit that in with Aykroyd's storyline of the morale and the tunnels and the slime, I feel like Aykroyd was more on the right track and that they didn't really need this possession piece. No, I think you've got a really good point there that part of this comes down to trying to do too many things at one time. And again, it's one of the reasons why it doesn't feel as connected and so if you had really just stuck to, you know, Aykroyd's idea, I think it it feels better and it gives you the opportunity to just really try and dig into what's you know, what's causing this, the why of it happening, um, you know, finding some um whacked out paranormal idea of why it's happening. I, I just feel like, you know, even though the Vigo character, which, you know, it's voiced by the great Max von Sydow and, you know, mm-hmm. such a good voice choice uh, for that. But he never feels as important to the plot the same way we did with the other plot for the first movie where it's like, it's this building that was built specifically like this to be, you know, an antenna for this extra dimensional, you know. All of these things that just really fit together. And this is just, it's some random painting that's here. And it, you know, it has to some, it somehow connects with these, you know, negative emotions in New York. And it's just like, it seems so flimsy. It's just not as, yeah. You know, like the first movie, it's, it's about, you know, this, this building and everything. And it's really concrete, right? I mean, just, Literally. Literally and physically, <laughs> right? But I think that actually really helps the, the story, right? And this is, is so ethereal and um, it, it just doesn't really seem to have the weight. And I think that's really the main problem is that you always know that they're going to defeat this and you don't 
Like, I don't really care. And I'll just say this, too. Um, I wanted to speak specifically about the Bill Murray character. I think they did him a real disservice. Because in that first movie, you have this character who's really selfish. Honestly, a dick. That's just what he is. Yeah. But by the end of the movie, you kind of feel like he's maybe kind of grown a little bit. You come into this movie, he's the exact same character who has to learn the exact same lesson uh, and it comes out the end being less of a dick, basically. It's just a little... um, It's just repetitive and it's frustrating. Yeah, I'm going to piggyback on that, agree with you and and say to you, it feels like I couldn't tell at first if it was him phoning it in. I didn't know if there was someone telling him to be less offensive than he was in the previous movie. Because it seemed like in general, his character was very toned down this time. Um, You know, in the first one, although we didn't love him being the creepy professor flirting with his students, it still was a character choice. And he had some dialogue and um, emotion that came across very strong. Whereas in this one, it feels like everything with him is very watered down. He doesn't really want to um, get on anyone's nerves, like as a character. Um, and then especially the way he interacts with Dana, you know, he used to really be like putting the moves on her, which was funny. And in this one, it feels like it's just, not really happening. Yeah, no, I agree with you in that. I think um, there there's something that is off about the betrayal, and I don't know if it is just him and the way that he's he the way the character's written. Um, honestly, uh, Bill Murray just looked a little bit worse for wear in this movie too. I felt like, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Um, and there just didn't seem to be the same vitality to the character in that way. Um, and and but more importantly, again, the character seemed to be the the same kind of jerk, but with without like you said the bite. And so it just didn't quite make as much sense. Um, and I think the storyline to me, it just would have been a lot stronger if. Him, uh, like, what the original intent was, which is him and Dana were together, and that was their kid, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that would have been really much uh, more satisfying as a a viewer, um, but it also would have been more satisfying to see him have grown and maybe, like, maybe he's having to come into his own as a father in this movie, you know? Like, that kind of thing. Where it's like, okay, he's got over one hump, and now he's got to get over the, you know, like, so, because I just feel like I watched this in a much better version in the original movie, the character arc, and now we're doing the same character arc again, but it's just not Mm -hmm. as satisfying or as interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. And part of that, too, is this because it's way too easy for him to woo Dana again. Like, yeah, she didn't really put up a fight. No. Uh, And, you know. Okay, uh, but it, it it there's everything in this movie. I that's the other thing I would say. Everything in this movie is just too easy. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's one of the main issues that I have with it. Is it just it doesn't feel like a challenge for our characters? 
um, which is disappointing because, you know, the first movie, I think, really puts them through the ringer and is a great challenge for all of them. And it's one of the things that makes it so interesting. Um, whereas this movie, there just really isn't that challenge uh, because the plot isn't really a challenge uh, for them. Uh, I think that, you know, we, the whole time we know they're going to make it. And then what they're facing is really challenge, And even what they're facing, you know, like, existentially, you know, uh, mm-hmm. with the threat isn't really a challenge. So um, I did want to ask you, too, because this movie also makes Rick Moranis' character a much bigger part. And what did you think of that choice? I loved it. Because I'll tell you, first of all, I'm a Rick Moranis fan. Have you seen Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and all the sequels to that? Because they I were have great. definitely seen Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in the theater back in the day. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I thought it was nice getting to see his character back and getting to do more than he did in the first film. Um, and I, I think he's a good actor. So I really didn't have any issue with his role in this one. Did you? Um, I don't know. I it. I think I don't have a problem with Rick Moranis being more involved. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing is is that I didn't necessarily care about the storyline for him. Like, uh, it just seemed it seemed shoehorned in. But he finally got to fall in love. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. Dana didn't want him. Yeah. Um, you know, you, again, that's all cute and everything, but like the fact that they have to go to court and everything, and so they get him as the lawyer, it, he never he never feels, uh, again, this is a, thing, a problem I have with the script, he never feels essential to mm, yeah. the movie in the way that he should... Um, you know, so, and the fact that he, you know, <laughs> he comes back and he, you know, like puts on the, the, the Ghostbuster suit and like helps them in the end. It just, mm-hmm. it doesn't really feel like, um, I don't feel like it feels earned, uh, as a character beat. And so I don't know. I'm just, I wanted, I like Rick Moranis too, because, uh, you know, I obviously grew up with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and stuff, but I just felt like that they didn't really use him very well in this movie. I think he mm-hmm. tries to do the best he can with what he has to work with. Uh, yeah. But I don't think he has a ton to work with, so. Yeah, I definitely agree that it doesn't have anything to do with him, that he doesn't get his due as a character. I think that they could have even made it to where he was kind of the hero instead of defeating him in that way of like, yeah, he shows up wearing the suit and everything like he's going to help, but then they've already fixed the problem by the time he helps. So I, I would have maybe liked him to have more of a role in that and actually made a dent. Um, But I, I did think it was cute seeing him get to have a love interest and babysitting Oscar and getting to be on screen more than he was in the first film. Um, But yeah, I think him as the lawyer was unnecessary and felt more disjointed Um, because too, I thought originally that he was just a tax preparer that he didn't even have a law degree. Yeah. So I was going, well, how would he be your lawyer if he's not a lawyer? 
You know, it's interesting, too, because uh, we talked a little bit about, and I think the the biggest part of this movie for me that actually worked the best was this whole idea of, you know, the negative emotions that, um, you know, Dan Aykroyd had this idea of that he wanted to really uh, couple this whole thing with this idea that um, all of these massive cities where uh, all these negative human emotions and where do they go? And, you know, so I think he's really on to something here because, you know, this is before Giuliani becomes mayor of New York in 94 and really, uh, you know, helps clean up New York and make it a completely different place. I mean, like by this point, New York is still the place where it's dirty. People are, I mean, when you say New Yorker, uh, the rest of Americans think jerk you know, um, and obviously the the mayor even makes a joke about, you know, how this is the city where it's your God-driven right to be a basically an a-hole to people. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, the the whole idea of that, like these these cities becoming wells of negative emotion and feelings that kind of become actualized in the paranormal, I thought, you know, that's actually a pretty interesting idea. Um, and I like that idea because, you know, the idea that that negativity has an impact on on the human psyche and human beings, especially when you put a bunch of us together in a concrete jungle, uh, I think is actually a, a really good thought. And so I wish this had been the thing that the movie was really about and really, you know, fully fledged out in a way that once you got to the end, uh, you you felt kind of vindicated for for beating. Uh, it and uh, I, I think it's it's half baked. Yeah, I, we're totally on the same page with this piece because I really enjoyed that and felt it was a strong plot point that existed throughout the entire movie and just doesn't connect with the rest of the ideas they tried to throw in together. But this part of it was a great idea and makes sense to anybody watching it that, yeah, we've all been to big cities where you're thinking there has to be at least one happy person somewhere or some reason that's worth living here for. And so I like that they envelop that into the whole aspect of the paranormal and that um, they relate it with the slime somehow getting filled up with all of this negative emotion, but that you can replace it with positive emotion and win. Um, it just, that should have been the main driving story and it wasn't. Yeah, absolutely. I, I 100% agree with you. I just think it is a really strong idea uh, to go with. And, and it, again, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it, it's, it's a goofy movie, but it's making you think, about something that at that point in time was was pretty prevalent in major cities, especially ones like New York. Uh, yeah. And so uh, thinking about the quality of life and, you know, there's the idea of what does it mean to have a massive metropolis like this and, and people living on top of each other in a, in a you know, um, a massive city like that and, and, you know, those are great questions for us to be thinking about and asking ourselves. Uh, and the fact that this movie, you know, kind of does that a little bit is great. It's just unfortunate that it never really gets its due is the main theme of the movie the way it should. And so. Um, and that song is the best part of the music. 
<laughs> that Jackie Wilson song was the best yeah. musical choice of the whole movie. Yeah, no, uh, it definitely, it, it works. Um, and, you know, I think, like, I was just thinking about the end, too. The very end of the movie, which they completely reshot, it is fascinating to me because of how much it just feels like the original, except it's reversed that the big thing marching down the sidewalks is here to help us, not destroy us. Right, now you know? it's the Statue of Liberty, but before it was Stay Puffed. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So, um, and I think that's one of those places where it's, it just, it feels, um, it just doesn't feel as inventive. You know, the first movie just feels so creative and fun and vibrant. And this movie just, I think, in many ways, and for all the reasons we've talked about, I think just kind of lacks those things. And I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, I was looking at, because I didn't know coming into this. I had no idea what this movie is about. I had no idea what the reviews for it were or anything like that, what people thought of it, really. And then after I, I watched it, I was kind of looking up some things. And I was like, wow, this movie got panned uh, critically. Uh, people just didn't really respond to it. And I, I think it. I, I understand exactly why. So um, mm-hmm. I, I, through all of that, I, I wonder, you, what would you rate... Ghostbusters 2. So I I didn't get to really go into the the other things that I liked about it as much, but I I still really thought the humor especially was great. I have to throw in that I loved the scene although it was uncomfortable between Murray and Ramis uh in the bookstore. <laughs> Because it was so freaking funny when he says, uh, well, I'm sure she's got a thing for that huge cranium of yours. And he goes, I think she's more interested in my epididymis. <laughs> like, Whoa. Um, so I, I still have uh, some brownie points for that and the, the familiarity and everything. I like that nostalgia. Um, even though I had never seen it before, seeing it for the first time, I, I still would like to watch it again, even though there were some disjointed parts to it. Um, so I, it's hard, but I think that I would still give it, um, I'll say a three and a half out of five stars. I'll go out of five this time so I can mm-hmm. relate it better. Um, cause I'd yeah. like to go watch it again. Hmm. Yeah. That, I mean, you know, I'm glad that for you that the movie did work better in that way. I, you know, I turned to my wife and I was like, I, don't really think I've laughed at this movie very much. And the funniest thing in the movie actually to me was when the woman's fur coat came alive, started attacking <laughs> her and then ran off down the street. I thought that was really funny. Um so I I I wasn't really responding much to the humor in the movie because it just wasn't as funny. And part of mm-hmm. that is that the guys just didn't feel as invested in the movie to me. And yeah. therefore, we just were not as funny. And so, yeah, to me, this is, I would say it's two and a half out of five stars. It's probably more like two, but I'll give it an extra half just to make it even. Um, I I will I will say I was highly disappointed, though. I and just, I expected, you know, after, and again, it's so funny, after all this time, you know, it, this movie's been out since 1989, uh, right, and we this finally was, saw yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> and this is the year of sequels, you know, like, this is, like, 
uh, and and big movies, you know, because 89s when Batman comes out, Last Crusade mm-hmm. comes out, it was Star Trek V, it was Ghostbusters 2. You know, this is a massive year for films, and this one's just... I didn't have anything spoiled for me, um, but I was definitely just as disappointed as I'm sure most people were walking out of the theater being like, man, I guess I'll just go home and watch my VHS of Ghostbusters, you know? So, mm-hmm. but... Um, I am excited, Christy. Uh, now it's time in that that part of the show uh, where we give our recommendations. Mm-hmm. What's yours? Well, uh, that's a great question, Christy, and I do have a good one for everyone here. So you know, we love talking about Bond movies, uh, and I had uh, done a quiz over on Facebook. It's one of those quizzes where it like tells you what your rankings will be by taking you through this series of questions uh, of a of a a franchise so i did one for bond and i have to say it was pretty accurate for me uh i would say it's probably like 98 percent accurate as to where i would place all the the bond films and mm-hmm. so uh for me at the top of the list is on her majesty's secret service and a friend of mine commented on my uh, my facebook and asked me if i'd ever seen this movie called becoming bond and it is the story of george lazenby uh and his life story uh, and about how he becomes James Bond and, and you know, the the subsequent things that happened to him in his life as well. So it is a fascinating story of a man who, you know, he has this great chance and it just doesn't go the way that everybody thinks it's going to go. And, and part of that reason is because of him. And so it is really interesting. Um, it's uh, it's. It's not something you can watch with your kids. Um, it's definitely got adult material in it uh, because it's an adult mm. story. But it, if you want just an incredibly interesting uh, documentary about uh, the man who would be Bond for one Bond, it's fantastic. And it's told by him. Uh, and then they uh, act out the scenes with actual actors you'll know. I mean, it's got like Jake uh johnson in it and uh jane seymour is in it uh there's a bunch of people that you'll recognize uh as act you know actual actors playing the different parts as he's telling his life story so uh and then they also use uh footage you know from from his actual life uh that they have as well so you know you kind of get a, a taste of what he's talking about so just absolutely fascinating it's called Becoming Bond, and it's on Hulu. So if you've got Hulu, it's free. Uh, I highly encourage anyone to watch it because I'm really enjoying it. I was watching it right before we started recording, and I still have about 20 minutes left. But it's it's been so fascinating so far. It's it's totally worth anybody checking out. Well, that's a really glowing recommendation. And being a Bond fan myself, I don't know if you knew. I, I am. Yeah, I, I feel like I've heard that before. I, I maybe you have. somewhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm gonna have to go watch that now because I know, you know, before I met you, I didn't really know much about Lazenby, but your, um, admiration for him has made me more interested in how he got into this. So I, I'd be interested in watching that. Not gonna lie. Well, good, good. I'll be really interested to hear what you have to say, but, uh, Chrissy, I'm interested more than that. Uh, Mm -hmm. what you're going to be recommending this week. So I had to kind of think about it, but um, something that I've done lately is actually gone back and um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm just in the mood to 
look at movies that have maybe been out for a while, but I never got around to seeing that are more of the like cult classics or just, you know, more independent indie movies. And a lot of them are actually on Amazon Prime right now. And one that I did that with was called Like Water for Chocolate. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've seen that. A long time. But yes, I have seen it. So. And I would actually really recommend it. I, I will definitely preface it with um, if you're not into more indie movies or movies that are going to be like this one where it's really the um, super drama kind of style. Um, it's a really like emotionally charged drama movie. If you're not into that kind of thing, then you may not like it. But it, but if you are, or you're interested in watching something that's a little bit off the beaten path of the blockbuster movies, I highly recommend it. I think that it's interesting. It's got a really strong story. It is a love story, but then also has this like family drama. Um, and it, I just, I, I really enjoyed it. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, well, I think we have two great recommends there for everybody, uh, you know, and can't wait to get together next week because we have a really fun uh, show that's going to be coming up for, for people. Uh, I'll spill it here because uh, if you haven't watched Lock and Key over on Netflix, that's what we're going to be talking about is that season. So this will give you time to be able to watch it. Uh, before we talk about it there uh, next week. And so, but Christy, you know, if people want to catch up with you and, uh, you know, see what you've been doing, uh, I know you've been playing on this new uh, platform called Talkity Tick or mm-hmm. Tit Talk or I don't know. Um, anyway, Tic Tac Toe. Yeah, Tic Tac Toe. Where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bespin Bell. And then when I'm not on the 602 Club every week talking with Matt, I also am on a couple other shows. I'm on Sabres and Spells with my friend Teresa on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network Skynet. And we talk about um, everything under the sun as far as um, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Stranger Things. Um, we are going to be diving more into our Harry Potter fandom again, talking about Harry Potter at home. Um, and then I'm on a show called Planet Leia on the Fanthatrax Network. We've been on hiatus currently, but looking to get back into it soon. Um, and then lastly, I do a segment called Fashion in Five on the Star Wars Report once a month about men's and women's Star Wars fashion. Well, and you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Vero under the name MattRushing02. Uh, you can also find me here on the network of doing the orb with chris jones talking about star trek d space nine we just had a brand new episode drop so make sure that you check that out we had a lot of fun being able to talk about uh some of the stuff from the deep space nine doc you can also find me on the nerd party network doing two shows one is called outpost with drea kaufman as we are talking about harry potter each and every week uh, and then i'm also doing aggressive negotiations with john mills as we talk about star wars each and every week which is a lot of fun uh and so please hit me up on both of those shows and then last but not least uh we hope to be back soon um you know it's it's been a little hard since the way we record is very different um but doing cinema stories with my good friend courtney as we talk about films through the lens of faith but thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear Thank you.